Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. Let's start with this week's Cambridge Tech News in partnership with Business Weekly. Having started life in a tiny room in the Cambridge Union building on Bridge Street, quantum computing pioneer Quantinium has grown into a unicorn following a $300 million raise, which now values the business at $5 billion pre-money. We covered them back in episode 26 if you want to learn more. And another startup previously featured on the show is also in this week's headlines. VividQ announced that it's developed the ability to deliver retina resolution computer-generated holograms, meaning the next generation of VR headsets will be able to offer unparalleled levels of immersion and realism to users. To highlight how close this technology is to market, VividQ is announcing that these retina resolution holograms can be displayed on high-performance liquid crystal on silicon displays from JKC. In addition to the partnership with JKC, VividQ reveals that it is also commercially engaged with the world-leading consumer electronics company to introduce holographic display technology into its future product roadmap. Check out episode 53 to learn more about VividQ. And finally, this week, Cambridge video game creator Frontier Development saw its share price rise on the publication of its unaudited interim results for the six months to November 30th. This included commentary that cost savings appear to be on track towards the top end of expectations, and they are on course to return to profitability in 2025. And that's this week's news. Beautifully done, James. And now to this week's episode. Today we're going to talk to Pam Garside, the chair of Cambridge Angels, the key local and national angel investment group. So Pam, thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. Could you start with giving us a little bit of background on your career? Yeah, um, it's nice to be here. So it's a bit odd for an angel investor. I I did a zoology degree at Durham, and then I was supposed to do a PhD in entomology, insects, black flies, and saw the light, decided not to, and I got on a graduate training scheme in the NHS. It's a bit like the Fast Stream program in civil service. And I got on that and I did it for a few years. And it's supposed to train you to run big chunks of the NHS. And I avoided that. And I worked at St. Thomas's, who sent me on a scholarship to the US to do a graduate degree. And I stayed in the US for 10 years in the health system there, such as it is, and got into basically strategy and consulting. And I came back here over 30 years ago. And I've done a mixture of consulting in the NHS and then to private sector getting into the NHS and uh, doing some sitting on boards and teaching. And I taught in the US, I taught at Imperial, and I've been a fellow of the Judge Business School for <laughs> over 25 years. So I'm older than some of the students. And, and I've always done that mixture. So I'm, I've been portfolio actually for quite some time. So Cambridge Angels, we have spoken already to a couple of the previous chairs, Peter Cowley, Simon Thorpe, and obviously you are now heading up the whole of Cambridge Angels. We've never actually really spoken about what Cambridge Angels is. So could you give us a little bit of background into the group and where it started, how long it's been going? Yeah, sure. So 
Cambridge Angels is a group of high net worth individuals. We have a maximum membership of 60. We're currently at 58. And we keep it at 60. Some other angel groups are much bigger. And we invest in deep tech, IP-protected technologies, and it's sort of AI, engineering, software, space tech, quantum, in my case, healthcare, digital health, biotech. And it was established in 2001 by Robert Sansom and David Cleveley and a group that got together and said, why don't we share our investment knowledge and learn from each other and each other's mistakes, as, as Robert said. And we invest as individuals in a group. It's a membership organization, but we all invest in individuals. We all see all the deals and elect which we go into. And then one of the angels will be the deal lead and eventually maybe a board advisor or sit on the board. So it works that way. So we, we don't have a separate fund or investment vehicle. We do it as individuals. And we've just been voted most active angel network by Bohurst, which is great. We see over a thousand deals a year. And last year we invested in 15 new companies, but 58 deals because we follow on as well. And our average deal size in terms of the money going in, it, it can go from uh, 300,000 up to 1.25 million. So how did you get involved in angel investing? Uh, so uh, I've always mentored young people and I still do. And I really like hanging out with young people, bright people. But, but the first company I invested in was in Australia. And I was advising them and I said, oh, can I have some equity in that? I had no idea what I was doing. And it did really well. And I thought, oh, hooray, this is great. And then the second company was in America. Again, that was two young, well, everybody's younger than me, but uh, young guys, a doctor and an epidemiologist who set up a company. And I said, well, can I come in early? I do very early stage, sort of pre-seed and seed. And that also did well. And I, I tell this story to encourage women to get into angel investing in particular. I didn't know at the time about EIS and SEIS, the, uh, and the tax beneficial breaks you get in the UK. My American colleagues can't believe it that, um, that we have these breaks. So I then started to invest in the UK. And again, all my investments before I joined Cambridge Angels were in digital health, health tech, a bit of biotech, but not much. And then I started to get deals sent to me because people say, how do you find your deals? And I say, well, <laughs> it's not difficult because people, the youngsters will find out what you're doing and send you all sorts of decks and deals. And then uh, I got asked to join Cambridge Angels. And so you've been the chair now for 12 months? Oh, yeah, 15 months. Actually. 15 months? Uh, yeah, 14, 15 months. Because yeah. I, I remember when you were first announced, I went straight to the amazing Emmy and said, we've got to get <laughs> Pam on the on the podcast. And she's like, Faye, she's got so much to do. You've just got to let her settle in. So, it's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're here. But so when a new chair comes in, you obviously have a vision and you have, you know, objectives. How do you then implement that, you know, and what, what do you think is the thing that you've really grappled with since you've taken over this, this position? Yeah, it's a good question. So membership organizations are interesting. I've chaired one before in the US and you're representing 60 very different people. And we have a board, obviously. And my three goals when I came in that I articulated were not to screw it up because it's very successful. And in a difficult market environment that we're in, and we'll be probably in for a couple of years, I want to make sure it remains vibrant and successful. 
And a lot of that depends on the membership. We are dependent on our members. Our members attract deals, our members invest in deals, and we have terrific members. So keeping that high. The other one, I've got three. Uh, an obvious one is diversity. Uh, when I joined Cambridge Angels, the two women members that we'd had had left. So the moment I joined, there were no women and 57 men, which is a bit of a shocker. Interestingly, it was Sherry Kutu and Amy Weatherup, and we've got them both back. So we've now got 10 women, which is great. Uh, so I want to improve that, get more women in, and obviously other forms of ethnic diversity, etc. So that's important to me, to us. And then the third thing is we've got such extraordinary members, quite a lot of whom hide their light under a bushel, let's say. You know, they, they're not going around saying how big and important they are and what amazing things they've done because three-quarters of our members just under three quarters are exited entrepreneurs and our sort of byline, as it were, is um, smart capital from entrepreneurs to entrepreneurs. So these people have done it. They've been there. I'm not one of them, actually. I probably figured out I haven't sold my own company. But their, their capacity to help young entrepreneurs is extraordinary. And I don't think people quite realize that. So we don't want to be crass going out there saying how marvelous we are, but we've got a bit of a a LinkedIn initiative with Simon Blakey, one of our board members, interviewing some of our portfolio companies, actually, but our angels as well, to let people know what depth of expertise we have in the group. So those are my three. And in terms of how you do it, I sort of gradually, I suppose, with, <laughs> with a group of uh, 60 members, but we have a board, which is great. And we do, you know, most of the leadership through the board. That third point, I think, is really interesting. So we've been doing some work with Peter Cowley and it's, okay, you've got all of this network of other angels, but the conversation is actually the vast majority of them don't have that external profile, which is, it's just really interesting. So it's great to hear that you're doing something around that as well. Maybe they're a little bit nervous that if they expand their profile, they'll get a lot of income in. And really the point is everything goes to Emmy as your chief deal sorcerer. Yeah, although clearly they do get deals coming through, but Emmy's our managing director for anyone who's listening. Uh, we do flip them over to Emmy. Clearly we screen out the mad ones, you know. I, <laughs> How many mad ones do you get? I get, I'd say 1.5 decks a day, as in I used to get a deck sent to me a day. And this is again from my sort of health tech contacts. And now I'm high profile, I guess, with Cambridge Angels. I, I often get two decks a day and I would say... Probably 10% are totally bonkers. Quite, quite a lot from the US and other countries, and we tend not to do that. So I would say I'll screen out 30%, and then some of them I don't understand, so I'll flip over to our other Cambridge Angels. So th there's a lot of personal screening, and then we send them into the group. And then there's a kind of, on FLEEP actually, there's a screening process once Emmy thinks this is good enough to even look at. And then we have a screening process, and then if we think they're, decent companies we offer them an opportunity to pitch hmm, interesting um so i guess the final cambridge angels question if you like is maybe just taking a look at the portfolio and you know if there's any names that might spring out to listeners that cambridge angels have backed and have gone on to great things or maybe call out some of the most recent investments that you've seen go through the group uh, that you've got high hopes for so past companies paragraph uh, aracor Privitar, Abcamp, Jonathan Milner's a member. I mean, really successful companies. And recent exits last year, we've had 10 to 8, Aracor, 
Arachnis and Flusso, those were last years, that people may be familiar with. Ones I'm excited about, uh, unlikely AI. I don't know whether you've had William Tunstall Pedo on the podcast who founded EV, which is now Alexa. I've invested in Unlikely AI and it's kind of next gen. Uh, it's not specifically health tech. In the health area, Monument Therapeutics, I'd mentioned, is exciting. Calium Health, um, I invested in that, which is a test for chronic kidney disease. And and then there's Curate, which I know Simon Thorpe's mentioned. There are just so many of them. There are, aren't there? I mean, you've got even Spotter, you know, that's yeah. a, a longer standing company with bed bugs. They had a resurgence again towards the end mm. of 2023. So I think, you know, it is a phenomenal portfolio of companies. And if you mentioned all of them, I think we would be here. Yeah, we would be um, here a long for, time. For quite a while. <laughs> If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, Lakeside Pavilion and Atrium Spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. So, Pam, just jumping back to the second objective that you had, which is around diversity, and thank you for sharing those updates on, you know, how female representation is increasing within Cambridge Angels, and it's one of your objectives to improve diversity further. Can we just talk about the UK investor community a little bit more broadly? And I know, again, we've had this conversation with Simon Thorpe, but what are your views on what we can do to get more females represented in that area? So UK Business Angels Association, its chair is Jenny Tooth. She's done a lot. And I help by speaking to potential women angels. Uh, Angel Academy, you'll have heard of, which is the predominantly women angel investing group that invests in, you know, at least one of the founders has to be women. And 14% of UK angels are women, and there's an objective to get to 30% by 2030. I don't know. I hope we'll make that. I think it's um, when I give the message I mentioned already that a lot of angels say, and I know you've had this on your podcast, we didn't know what we were doing in the beginning, like me. You know, you're sort of flying by the seat of your pants. Women, I believe, from my experience, take fewer risks. And you ha I say to them, you, you take your broad range of assets and decide you can risk so much because it's a risky business but it's yours and it's fun and take risks and if you like hanging around with young people like I do it's really rewarding and potentially financial rewarding so I give that message a lot and another thing I'm, I do is I'm more likely to give time to a female founder I, I do that I, I you could say I'm, it's a prejudice but I do that and Soon after I'd been appointed chairman of Cambridge Angels, I had a woman online and she visibly relaxed and said, it's so nice talking to a woman. She had a femtech company. 
And then another said, oh, you'll get lots of female founders attracted to the group just by having one of the figureheads as a woman, which is great. So we have to get role models out there of people doing this stuff who are enjoying it and they're relatively successful. Also, there's a group of young women in the successful companies like Airbnb and Uber and companies over here who've made quite a lot of money. They're, they're not exited entrepreneurs and they want to invest and they often ask my advice. So I give sort of lots of time. And I think one area that we need work on is venture capital because the statistics on the proportion of funds going to women are dire. I mean, it's less than 3%. Well, by some measures, the, the value of investments is about 1%. And if you look at the VC firms, there are more now with women partners, but they're not enough. So we need role models in the VC community as well that, you know, obviously follow on after our angel investments. So it, it's a long haul, but I think role models are important, getting the message out there and going seeking people out. Simon thought sought me out to join Cambridge Angels. And I first said, well, don't be silly. <laughs> I haven't sold a company for whatever zillions. But I think I think we have a responsibility to go and find people as well. Yeah. Some really good points. So you, you've talked a lot about your experience in the health sector and health tech in particular. So why don't we kind of segue into talking a little bit about what the trends you're seeing in that area. We hear a lot about AI and we certainly talk about AI a lot on the podcast and you've mentioned women's health there as well. So what are you seeing in medtech right now? AI is a big one. So five, six, even seven years ago, you get a deck and it's it mention AI and you go, yeah, whatever. And they were listing things in healthcare like software to support clinical decisions, you know, doctors and nurses using a protocol, and that's not AI. But now we have real AI with the large language models. And I've invested in a couple of companies doing it in health. One is Chiron Medical, which uses AI into breast imaging. And so normally you need two radiologists to read a scan, one as a backup. And this does the second reading better than a radiologist, not too popular with radiologists, but it, it's really quite revolutionary. So it's, things like that are great. And there's another thing in healthcare, particularly in America. So about 30% of the massive healthcare costs in America are due to transactional costs because they have to bill and their insurance and everything's documented. And automation is a very big thing now, backed up by AI. So I would say automation... AI, I think we have to be careful with AI in medical terms because Mark Zuckerberg famously said, move fast and break things. But in healthcare, I think you have to move fairly slowly, don't kill anyone and don't lose their data. It's a highly regulated, dangerous environment. And so on the medical side, we have to be really, really careful on the clinical because one mistake is catastrophic for patients. I think on the administrative side with, you know, billing, administrative processes, scheduling, all of that stuff in hospitals and healthcare is very open to automation and AI. So those are very exciting. Areas that I superficially know about that are very exciting are computational biology, genomics, personalized medicine. It is extraordinary what's happening in the whole area of oncology, biomarkers, genetic profiling. The thing that I look at from having worked in health systems is how on earth are we going to afford it? You know, CAR-T you've heard of, 
specialised cancer therapies, we can only just afford what's come out already. So it's a sort of mixed picture, but the science is extraordinary. So I would say those things. Um, you mentioned femtech. There's a lot of femtech companies driven by very passionate founders who've had issues you know, with their health and being not listened to. And some of those are not very protectable, you know, like it's another app for menopause, it's another app for personal fertility. So I'm very keen on the sort of deeper tech things that can be protectable, probably as well B2B rather than B2C in, in my case. A couple of things you mentioned there that I'd love to come back on and, and delve a little bit deeper. You, you touched on the different environment of being an entrepreneur in healthcare versus, say, software, you know, where it's much more regulated, the risks are much higher because you're dealing, obviously, with people. What do you see in an entrepreneur working in health tech? Maybe it's what you just said, or the, the fact that many of them have had a, you know, a personal challenge or maybe someone close to them, but they must have to have a lot more resilience and dedication and persistence than, say, uh, an entrepreneur in other less regulated mm. fields. That's interesting. I'm married to a doctor. I'm saying that for a reason. I controversially have said several times, beware investing in companies founded by doctors because they do tend to think that they're, well, they are, they're very clever. They've been top of school, they've been in medical school, they've done all this amazing stuff and they don't quite get the business side of things and the hiring side of things and all the soft side of things. So I'll probably get lots of rude emails now. But the, the interesting that people who've worked in other areas of tech often find themselves in health because, for instance, in mental health, they might have a parent with Alzheimer's or a kid and, and they go, ooh, that's much more valuable. It's a good example, actually. DeepMind, great company, sort of came out of Cambridge. They made their money in the first year after Google bought them, I believe, in lowering the temperature of data centers, hugely valuable to the company. And they also started, of course, a lot of work in health. And the engineers want to work in health because it's of some intrinsic value. And I know there are health companies, you could say, you know, they're not, they're not all perfect and value-driven. But I do think quite a lot of founders come across from other tech areas and find it fascinating. Also, there's some very bright people in health. The medics are bright. People in pharma companies are really bright. The scientists are bright. There's, there's this sort of real intellectual diversity and melting pot across the health scene that's very interesting to work in. And in the end, you hope you do something good for a patient. And I think that drives them. However, as you say, it's, it is highly regulated. So it's very important that we protect the privacy of patient data for obvious reasons. Yeah, and the second thought uh, that you provoked was, I mean, I, I'm lucky in the sense I get to see the ideas that come through the Trinity Braffield Prize, you know, which are coming from Cambridge University students and researchers. And I'd say there's probably about 60 to 70 percent life sciences and, and med tech ideas. So do you see that um, at a higher level? Do you see, you know, a disproportionate number of med tech and healthcare and life science ideas coming from Cambridge compared to Dilflow across the rest of the UK? Yeah, I do on the deep science side. So I'm also on the investment committee for the seed funds for Cambridge Enterprise. Mm. And over the years, I've been on that longer than in Cambridge Angels, but in both organisations, we see more. And I think there's there's been a revolution in biological sciences and the application of computational biology, which I mentioned, uh, computer science to biology. And Cambridge, of course, is a fantastic place to do that. The university is, you know, 
almost beyond measure for that. So I think that's why we're seeing more and more. And I think some Cambridge angels are thinking, God, is med tech or health tech taking over <laughs> the system and the deals we invested? I don't think it's taking over, but it has grown. You're right. And I think it's partly it's because of the ecosystem and the university is so strong in that. And that kind of leads me to my last question for you, which is, Where's the smart money going? You know, what do you see in terms of, of the future? Is it this purposeful tech? What what do you see? Purposeful tech, yes, that's good. I do think we're going to see such further step changes in artificial intelligence that we can't even imagine. I can't. Some of my members working in AI probably can because, um, again, I'll take it back to healthcare. When I went on the investment committee for Cambridge Enterprise that, uh, head of the AI labs on it. And I said, why is it that I'm seeing so much in health? And he said, because you have the data. We have an extraordinary database in health. And we do in America, we do here, particularly here actually because of the NHS. And so the ability of companies to drill into that database is extraordinary. And I think we'll see a lot more of that and a lot more assembling of data points around medicine and healthcare. So AI and automation, I've mentioned already. Climate tech as well, which I don't know too much about. But I can see that, um, I mean, Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act is causing a lot of startups to think or move over there because there's such amazing investment breaks for climate tech. But again, the university has really strong credentials scientifically in climate tech. And I think climate tech sustainability is another one. Again, not not my bag, but I, I do think seeing the young scientists come up, that's another area. And just building on that, it's been a challenging 18 months for startup funding. How are you feeling about 2024? Do you think we're through that? I don't think we're through it yet. <laughs> As a natural optimist, I'm thinking things will pick up. I mean, clearly valuations are down. Venture capital had a lot of unspent funds in you know in 21 and 21 was a crazy year in health tech the valuations were right up i benefited a couple of times which is nice now valuations down no shortage of companies coming to cambridge angels or to us as, as angel investors there is no shortage in the pipeline what i see is the companies that are trying to get to series a and that's really difficult and they're going to run out of cash and some of them have two of mine i'm afraid just have in the last quarter so i think vcs are carefully following on and that's good i just get the impression the market might tick up you know interest rates are not as high as they were and projected to go down and i think there was quite a lot certainly in my sector of money being thrown around because of the high valuations and I think we've got to a more sensible position, potentially dipped a bit too far. But no, I think things will pick up a little. That's great. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and, and talking to us and sharing your insights. It's That's been great. a pleasure. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.